need a king whose Last Supper would be the opposite of what Saul's Last Supper was. We need a king who is better than David. There's something special about sharing a meal for Christmas or New Year's, isn't there? There's something about sharing a meal with other people that expresses something. I realize some of you may have had to work on Christmas Day, so maybe there was not as much of an opportunity to spend time with others or share a meal together. But hopefully, uh, last weekend you were able to enjoy fellowship uh, with others in the body. I imagine some of you are looking forward not only to the evening prayer service tonight, but also to, to food and fellowship afterwards. And for many of you, I imagine that conversations at this time of year already turn towards, towards the Lunar New Year. If you'll go to your hometown or if you'll travel, if you'll spend time with family over the longer break. And what will you do together? Well, you'll eat, right? And there are certain expectations for families eating together over the holidays, isn't there? There's a statement being made in, in who joins for Christmas or for Chunjie. After Ting Ting and I had been dating for about a year, the question was if I should go back uh, over Chunjie to, to meet her parents. And in the end, we decided that maybe I could go like a couple days after like Chunjie Neitian, so that maybe there was a little less pressure, but it was still Chunjie time. In the end, I actually didn't go because of COVID, but that was what we were thinking. But inviting your boyfriend to Chunjie, inviting your girlfriend to Christmas, I mean, that, that kind of is saying something to the rest of the family, isn't it? There are particular meals that, that seem to symbolize something more. Now we're going to hold that thought in thinking about food and fellowship. There will be a significant meal at the end of our scripture passage for this morning. Here we are at the end of the year. We're almost at the end of our study in the book of 1 Samuel. These last several chapters close the story of King Saul, although the story of King David will continue in the book of 2 Samuel. In one grand story, we follow the lives of Samuel, Saul, and David. There's been a lot to glean on the way. Instead of beginning with a main point this morning, I want to begin with a question. And that question is this. What kind of king do God's people need? What kind of king do God's people need? Now, hopefully this doesn't feel like an entirely new question in our series in 1 Samuel. But I think it's especially fitting to ask this question with our sermon text this morning. 
And the answer to this question, which we'll get to by the end of the sermon, will basically be the main point of the sermon. And in order to answer this question, we're going to look at the two options the text gives us. One choice we have for king is the fugitive, not yet reigning, not yet King David. And the second choice we have for king is the reigning King Saul. So this sermon will have two points. These two points kind of act like the headings of two chapters. The first chapter heading is the fugitive king's self-reliant sojourn. The fugitive king's self-reliant sojourn. We'll see that in chapters 27 until the beginning of chapter 28. And the second chapter heading is the reigning king's meal with a medium. The reigning king's meal with a medium. That's in chapter 28, verses 3 to 25. So let's begin with the, the first half of our story for this morning. The fugitive king's self-reliant sojourn. Please open your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27. It's also printed in your bulletin. If you remember from a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel, we looked at chapters 24 to 26, in which we saw David refraining from lifting his hand against Saul. David did not take vengeance against Saul, and God kept David from taking vengeance against the Saul-like figure, Nabal. But in David's speech in chapter 26 to Saul, David did say something interesting. He said he spoke of being driven out so that he would have no share in the heritage of the Lord and basically being told to go serve other gods. That statement foreshadows what we find here in chapter 27 as David feels that he has been driven away from Israel. So please look with me at chapter 27, starting in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, 
the camels and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. So, why might I choose to call this David's self-reliant sojourn? By the end of this first half, some of you may be thinking, oh, like we're, we're being too hard on David. If you think so, you can talk to me afterwards. But there's something lacking here that was made so clear earlier in 1 Samuel. For example, in 1 Samuel 23, when David was considering to go and attack the Philistines and saving the Israelite town of Keilah, he inquired of the Lord. In the section we just read, there's no mention of God. We get the sense from the beginning of this chapter that David is somewhat overcome by this sense of, of hopelessness. But remember what God had done? Remember how God had, had given Saul into David's hand, and David did not kill Saul? Remember how God over and over protected David from Saul. But David seems like, like he feels like he can't take it anymore. His boldness in speaking to Saul in the previous chapters is, is contrasted here with this kind of listless attitude. He said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. This, there's nothing better language is echoed in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because of the vanity of life, there's nothing better that we do X, Y, and Z. David's plan is understandable from a human perspective. He and his men are tired of running from Saul. And if they're in the country of the Philistines, Saul would be afraid to enter to find them. David had already tried once. He had traveled to Achish in Gath before. But that trip ended with him pretending to be insane and leaving. This time, David is at the head of 600 men, what appears like it could be a mercenary fighting force. And David's plan seems to be working. He asked to be allowed to live in a country town a little bit farther away from the eyes of Achish. And this gave him more freedom. David would live in the country of the Philistines for a year and four months. And David and his men would go on raids. They would raid the enemies of the Israelites and return to Achish, king of Gath, telling him, well, kind of the general area where they raided, making it seem like, actually, making it sound like David was massacring 
Israelite towns. And Achish believed it. We have seen that David has done much out of obedience to God, but here the reason given for his killing the men and women of a town seems to be mainly done out of self-preservation. The reasons we act in different ways are crucial to understand. Yes, David was fighting against Israel's enemies, and he was not lifting a hand against any Israelites. But the reason he didn't want anyone to survive was so that no one could tattletale back to King Achish in Gath. And this deception was working. Achish thought that David would be his servant forever. Achish thought that the Israelites now all hated David. And then the story kind of just ends on a cliffhanger. Achish tells David that he and his men are to fight with the Israelites against, fight with the Philistines against Israel. David gives an answer that perhaps could even pass a lie detector test. Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. But the obvious predicament David has put himself in is will, his, will he and his men really fight against the Israelites? Or if they turned against the Philistines during battle, would that be the end of David and his men? It seems that David's plan for self-preservation could possibly backfire. It could put him and his men in a more dangerous situation than they had ever been in before. Or if David did put his hand against his own people, who would want a traitor for a king? So David is still very relatable in this story. It's hard to imagine what he's gone through, but he's far from perfect. He seems to be relying on his own smarts rather than trusting in God's deliverance. He's very human. The same David who trusted God to deliver him to fight against Goliath seems to be running low on that childlike trust of God, at least for this particular season in Philistine territory. So is this the king Israel needs? David is still for Israel. He's still fighting against Israel's enemies. But did David really need to rely on the cover of the Philistines to be safe from Saul? Brothers and sisters, is there a point, a breaking point, when our trust in God falters? Do you feel like you're in enemy territory far away from God and his people, when actually it might be a predicament of your own making? In thinking on this story, let's make three observations. First, trusting God means trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. Trusting God means trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. If you're just rolling the dice, yeah, eventually Saul's going to kill David. He's going to find him if you're just rolling the dice. But God is protecting David. 
trusting in God means that we trust in Him no matter what the circumstances are. So even when Saul and his men were chasing David, they're on one side of the mountain, David's on the other side of the mountain, Saul is about to catch up. God can send a messenger to Saul that draws him away just like that. That doesn't mean that we don't plan or that we don't use logic. But there will be times when we'll be called to do the right thing and then trust God with the results, no matter what those results might be. There may be times when, when honoring God with our lives may cost us a job. There may be times when sharing the gospel may cause great tension in the family. There may be times when honoring God with how we lead our families will not make sense to most of the people around us. But we continue to trust God. We seek to be obedient to Him and to His rule even when things get hard. Second, just because there's an open door, there's the option of doing something, doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will. Just because there's an open door doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will. David had the option of moving him and his, man, and his men to Gath, but that doesn't mean it was the most honoring, God-honoring choice to do so. So when we make decisions, we still need to be making use of all that God gives us in considering the principles of wisdom from his word, seeking the counsel of mature brothers and sisters. And if something would result in us sinning, if something would be sinful, then that's obviously not God's will for us. And so when we think of life decisions, we're not simply looking for an open door. We're also making use of God's various means of grace when we make a decision. And sometimes there are decisions that we make where there's not a clear wrong or right. But oftentimes different decisions we make should be more informed by the wisdom of God's word, the principles of God's word, and perhaps a little patience at times. And so if you get offered your dream job, but it's far from any good church, that actually doesn't sound like it would be God's will. Because God's will is for you to gather with brothers and sisters regularly. So instead, this test of your desires actually might be an opportunity for you to consider sacrificing something you really want and prioritizing gathering with God's church. Or perhaps there would be a, another kind of example where, where you do have your dream job or a dream job offer, and so you take the time to research, ask questions, and find out that you know, oh, there is a good church nearby. And I'm not saying that, that God doesn't open doors or that he doesn't close doors. And I'm not saying that God doesn't lead or guide. But we want to continue to be wise and prayerfully considering wisdom uh, from God's word. Considering how his word might apply to different choices in life and, and seeking good counsel from mature brothers and sisters. Third, even in a spiritual wasteland, God is faithful to his people. Even in a spiritual wasteland, God is faithful to his people. 
David may have put himself in a dangerous situation and was making some questionable decisions. This is not David's shining moment in the book of 1 Samuel. This story probably doesn't get attention in any children's storybook Bible. And yet God continues to be faithful to David. We see that as we continue with David's story. If we think of David's time in the land of the Philistines almost like a detour, God still reigns over this detour. The end of a calendar year is a time when we look forward, but we also think back. We reflect on this past year. Perhaps you even thought about decisions you regretted this past year. Perhaps there are decisions that have put you on a trajectory that you think, oh, actually, this doesn't look as good as I thought. Perhaps there are decisions that have caused you to be too busy or too tired or pushed to the sidelines other things um, that you want to prioritize, that you think would be God-honoring to prioritize. But even in those seasons of life, when we look back and we think, oh, we could have done something differently, God is still faithful. David's faith may have seemed small at times, it may have burned brighter at other times, but whatever the case, God was still faithful to David, and God will still be faithful to keep his promises to David. And so, brothers and sisters, whatever mistakes we have made in this past year, we continue to trust God. We have every reason to trust God with 2024. Even with COVID mostly behind us, this past year probably wasn't easy for many. And what, yet we can agree that God has been faithful, and he will be faithful. And so we finish up with this, this first chapter in our two-chapter story for today. So is David the kind of king that God's people need? That brings us to point two. The reigning king's meal with a medium. The reigning king's meal with a medium. Verses 3 to 25 of chapter 8, of chapter 28. So why would the author of 1 Samuel leave us on such a cliffhanger to move back to see what's going on with Saul? And I think it's because there's something very important happening in Saul's life that says something about this overall narrative of 1 Samuel. So please look with me, starting in verse 3 of chapter 28. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, 
that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium of Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for, by, for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. So we already knew that Samuel had died. We were told that at the beginning of chapter 25. But the fact that Samuel is dead and buried gives us background for this part of our story. We're also told in verse 3 that Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. In doing so, Saul was acting in accordance with God's law. The Philistine army gathers and Saul is afraid. This is not going to be some small raid. The whole Philistine army has gathered. This is not the first time Saul is afraid. Remember back to when Saul was to be crowned king. He was hiding among the baggage. Verse 5 speaks of Saul's heart trembling. Saul tries to inquire of the Lord. This is a play on Saul's name as his name has the meaning of ask 
in it. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but it, this wordplay has been used more than once in the book. But God would not answer Saul. And instead of being content with silence, Saul quickly seeks counsel from other means. So Saul seeks a medium, someone who could or who says that they could communicate with the dead. Notice the sad irony here. We were just told that Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. This would be in accordance with Deuteronomy 18, that Israel was not to have people who participate in these demonic practices in Israel. But when Saul does not hear from God, he goes and seeks a medium. And for some reason, his servants know exactly where one is, in Endor. And if that sounds like it's a place in Star Wars, well, the Bible named it first. So Saul disguises himself and goes to the woman at night. Saul wouldn't want anyone else to know he's going to consult a medium. We're oftentimes just directly spoken of as the witch of Endor. After Saul and this woman start talking, the, the woman knows that what she is doing could result in her death sentence. But Saul promises her safety. And notice the way Saul promises her safety. Saul swears by the Lord. So this is blasphemy. The Midrash, the interpretation that the Jewish rabbis gave, compares what, what Saul swore to a, a woman who is with her lover and swears by the life of her husband. So Saul tells the woman to bring up Samuel. When the woman sees Samuel, she cries out with a loud voice. So it seems here that the woman herself is surprised that something is happening beyond her control. So sometimes people ask, well, did the woman really raise up Samuel? It seems that, it seems that the woman is not really in control here. Otherwise, she wouldn't be surprised in this way. And when she sees Samuel, she realizes who Saul is. And Saul tells her not to be afraid. What an irony again. She should be afraid. This woman is sinning against God's command, and so is Saul by telling her to. Now, in thinking of this, if this is the real Samuel or a vision of the real Samuel speaking, whatever the case, the words that are spoken would fit with what Samuel has already said. He repeats what we know earlier from the book of 1 Samuel, plus the added detail that this fulfillment of prophecy will happen tomorrow. Saul, his son, would die tomorrow. The Israelite army 
would be defeated tomorrow. So Saul, filled with fear, falls face down on the ground. When it comes to witchcraft and supernatural forces of evil, this story may leave some questions unanswered. Some questions we probably shouldn't actually be asking, like how to communicate with the dead. For God's people, there, it is clear that there are evil forces. There are demonic forces. They have some power. And seeking guidance from the demonic is sinful. Some have questioned whether, uh, like, how much this woman really could do. But that isn't the point either. Whatever the case, she's saying that, that she is, and she attempting to communicate with the dead, whether by evil spirits or other means, is sin against God. It goes directly against the worship of the true God. One family sent out from the church that I grew up attending, along with another family, planted a church among a previously unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. And the Christians there in the tribe, they've been, there have been Christians in the t- tribe for maybe over a couple of decades now, but they're still tempted to go back when times are very tough to consult a witch doctor. Now, we might not have that same temptation to literally seek a medium or a witch, but do we as well fall back into old ways of trusting in idols instead of trusting in God? If God seems silent, do we continue to persevere in crying out to God? And unlike Saul, for the Christian, God will not remain silent. First, he has already spoken in his word. Second, we have his spirit living in us. So God is not silent. That doesn't mean that for the Christian there are times that, or that doesn't mean that that you may not feel like, have this feeling that God is silent, but this feeling is not actually the reality of your relationship with God if you are in Christ. So when God seems silent, we continue to cry out to him. We do not try to reach for other means. A great model of this is the desperate prayer in the Psalms. There's these desperate questions. God feels very far. The psalmist cries out in pain or in agony. And yet these are questions, these are cries that continue to be directed to God, not directed to anyone else or to anything else. The psalmist does not look to help from other gods or from the spirits of the dead. So let's pray for strength to continue to pray, to continue to seek God, even if he seems silent, even if he seems far away. We have the promise that God will not leave us if we are in Christ. God will not remain silent. But what happens next in this story? The woman treats Saul kind of like an equal. She says that 
Well, she obeyed Saul. Now it's Saul's turn to obey her and eat. And Saul's servants agree as well. So the woman kills a fattened calf and bakes unleavened bread. They eat. And they rose and went into the night. I wonder here too as well if this woman is thinking that, well, if she treats Saul this well, he's not going to go after her to drive her out of Israel tomorrow if he's alive. So David may have gotten himself into a predicament, but it's nothing compared to how far Saul has fallen. Do you remember the words of Samuel to Saul after he refused to devote the Amalekites to destruction? Samuel said in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Now one can, well, Saul did make excuses at that time. And one can imagine Saul at that time thinking he would never fall into a sin like divination or idolatry. But his rebellion ultimately did lead to this sin. And so Samuel's words not only teach us about the seriousness of rebellion against God, but they also in this case were prophetic. God has left Saul, but instead of persevering and seeking God, Saul goes to seek other options. And it seems that he does this only when, when faced with the gravest danger. God had been silent a long time. Saul killed God's priests quite a while ago, earlier in 1 Samuel. But it's now that Saul tries to seek an answer from God. I began this sermon by, by talking about sharing a meal with family or friends and what's signified by that. Here, a, a necromancer prepares a fattened calf for Saul. And this is, not, this is not a fictional witch. This is a necromancer by profession. Saul no longer has fellowship with God. The ones who are willing to have fellowship with Saul are the enemies of God. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, before Saul was anointed king, Samuel ate with Saul and gave him an honored portion of meat. Here at the end of Saul's reign, the night before his death, a witch kills the fattened calf for her king. So this is Saul's last supper. It's the night before his death. This meal is prepared quickly. There's unleavened bread similar to at Passover. And this is not the kind of Last Supper Israel would want for their king. Israel needed a king who would be faithful and God-fearing to the end. In the person of Saul, they, they got a king who seemed to start well enough, but whose sin drove him further and further from God. 
until he spent his last supper trembling with two servants and a witch preparing him food. So what kind of king do God's people need? Here we get to our main point. We need a king whose last supper would be the opposite of what Saul's last supper was. We need a king who is better than David. We need a king whose last supper would be the opposite of what Saul's last supper was. We need a king who is better than David. There's much in David that would make him a good king, but we need a better king. Unlike Saul, in the future, David would repent over his sins. But David did have grave sins of his own. And David died. David could not address our deepest need, our need for salvation. The king we need is the king whose Last Supper is beautifully contrasted to Saul's Last Supper. Saul was deathly afraid of his death. Jesus was obedient to his death. Saul sought counsel from a witch. Jesus, after his Last Supper, would go to the Mount of Olives to pray. Saul had not planned to eat with this witch, but was easily convinced. Jesus purposefully planned his last supper with his disciples as a celebration of, a, of the Passover. Saul's death would open the way for a better king, a man after God's own heart. Jesus' death would open up the way for his own reign, Jesus now reigns as king at the right hand of God, the Father. The figure most like Saul at Jesus' last supper was Judas, who took a morsel of bread and went out into the night. If you're not a Christian and you've visited with us, you've noticed that we instruct you not to take the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And why is that? Well, it's because a meal that, that Christians are meant to remember together what King Jesus did for us. Do we want you to be able to partake in the Last Supper or in communion with us? Of course we do, but, we, but you must first repent and believe in Jesus. And we would celebrate that with you, with the other sign God gave us of baptism. What happens at the Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus came to this earth to do. Jesus gave up his life for us. He shed his blood for us. He is the sacrificial Passover lamb. But why did this need to happen? Because of our sins. Because we, like Saul, did not want to submit to God. Because we want to keep crowns on our own heads instead of bowing and worshiping the true king. Because we have rejected God and gone our own way. 
and the punishment for our sins is death. Only someone perfectly innocent could take our place. If two men were given a death sentence, one could not volunteer to take on an extra death sentence to let the other man go free. It would have to be an innocent man. Jesus lived that perfect life, and he died taking on the punishment that we deserve, taking on our death sentence for us. But death could not keep a hold on Jesus. He rose again from the grave in victory, and he reigns forever as king, the son of David, who is David's king and David's Lord. So friends, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please do consider who Jesus is and what he has done. Jesus is the king. He deserves to be your king. And the good news is not only for non-Christians. There's a reason that as Christians we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper again and again. It's evidence of just how important the gospel is and remembering the gospel is in all our lives. We're to remember again and again the work of Christ on the cross. We're to do so together as a body. So when we take the Lord's Supper together later in the service, let's be filled with gratitude towards Jesus. We deserved a king like us, a king like Saul. But God sent us King Jesus. Jesus came as a baby born in the town of David in the line and lineage of David. Jesus the King came to this earth to live the perfect life and to die for the sins of the world. So brothers and sisters, Jesus is the King that we need. And Jesus invites us to fellowship with him, to come and to eat with him. Jesus invites us to our forever home with him. And what a privilege it is to have such a king, a good and faithful shepherd king. And so we say with this psalmist, surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in our King's house forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for the way that through Christ we can have fellowship with you, that we are not left on our own, separated from you and not being able to hear from you, but that you sent Christ who died and rose again for our sins. Lord, would we be strengthened with hope and with trust in you in light of the good news of the gospel. Thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.